This is a podcast from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship, a gathering of many nations who are one in Christ. We're all very familiar, I'm sure, with the events that took place early in the morning on the first Easter Sunday. But our text today is from something that happened later the afternoon of the same day. And you can find that story in Luke chapter 24, Luke 24, verses 13 to 35. Let's read the word of God together. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, What are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things? he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. What is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said. But they did not see Jesus. He said to them, How foolish you are, and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going further. But they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, Were not our hearts burning within us? while well, he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us. They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the eleven and those with them, assembled together and saying, It is true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened on the way, and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. This is the word of the Lord. It's late afternoon. Two travelers walking on a lonely road. Not a great highway, a dusty track winding down through the hills, occasionally passing through a sleepy village. The two walkers are journeying the seven miles from Jerusalem to Emmaus, a village honestly so obscure that no one's quite sure where it was. 
They're walking. Notice they're not riding. These are ordinary working class people. Just another set of pilgrims headed home after the Passover celebration. But these two are followers of Jesus. Not part of the 12, you understand, but they're not part of the crowd either. They are part of the outer circle of the great rabbi's followers. One is a man named Cleopas. The Bible has never mentioned him before, and it won't mention him again. A minor character. And about his companion, we know even less. Very possibly, it was Cleopas's wife, but that's only a guess. Two walkers. Ordinary people, but they'd been caught up in great events. Only a week earlier, Jesus had arrived in Jerusalem. A celebrity prophet, a miracle worker, a feeder of thousands. Huge crowds had welcomed him, waving palm branches and chanting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And perhaps Cleopas and his companion had been among the disciples walking behind Jesus, entering the city, behind the king. Exhilarating stuff, because any moment now, Jesus might declare the revolution, the revolution against the Romans, and by the power of God, usher in a new golden age for the Jews. That was the hope. But things had gone horribly wrong. Only a few days later, Jesus had been betrayed by one of his closest disciples, arrested, handed over to the Romans, condemned to death, and brutally executed on a cross. The revolution had been crushed before it began. The crowds, well, the crowds would find someone else, but it wasn't so easy for those who had given up everything to follow Jesus. Their world had been destroyed. They couldn't just go back to life before. They had been so sure this carpenter had been sent by God. But his execution seemed to prove that faith a delusion. Or did it? The pieces wouldn't fit together. And as they walk, the pair turns the whole story every which way, searching for a resolution, groping for meaning. So absorbed are they, they're overtaken by a stranger coming up fast behind them. It's Jesus himself, Luke tells us, risen from the dead only that morning, intent on falling in with these two on the road. Now stop and think how odd this is. Had you been the Messiah's chief of staff, you would have reserved the schedule on day one of resurrection for appearances to much more important people. The Jewish high priest, the philosophers in Athens, perhaps the emperor in Rome. And how deeply moving it is that Jesus chooses to spend this afternoon, of all afternoons, to comfort the grieving hearts of two ordinary disciples. Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, Luke tells us. And as Luke's readers, we know this is Jesus 
but somehow his face fails to register with these two disciples. For Luke tells us they were kept from recognizing him. Now that's very unusual too, because the two must have known Jesus' features and mannerisms and voice very well. He was imprinted on their memories, yet they were kept from recognizing him. Notice, passive voice. They were kept from recognizing him. This is God's doing. He's disconnected that bit of circuitry between their eyes and their brain so that all they can see before them is a stranger. And we should ask ourselves, why would God do this? Surely, these disciples need revelation right now. They need an immediate end to these terrible feelings. It's certainly what we would demand of God ourselves. But yet God seems to have a deeper purpose. Yes, the moment of revelation will happen, but it's been deferred. Jesus will teach them to be true disciples, those who learn to walk by faith, even in the dark. But though they don't recognize Jesus, he has recognized them. They're not strangers to him. Their faces are imprinted on his heart, and he comes up behind them on the road to speak joy into their sadness. And it's ironic, isn't it, that these two disciples are consumed with grief over the absence of the beloved master. And yet, in that very moment, they possess his presence as never before. And perhaps during those times when Jesus feels farthest away from his followers, lost and gone, perhaps during those times, he's actually walking right alongside us. So this stranger falls into company and he asks these guys, so what are you discussing together as you walk along? Well, they stand stock still in the road, utter dejection is written across their faces. And Cleopas asks a little sharply, are you really the only one in Jerusalem who doesn't know what's been going on? The irony, of course, again, another irony is that Jesus, in fact, is the only person who does know what's actually going on. But he answers politely, what things? The two of them stare at Jesus. Then the words tumble out. We can't believe you've never heard of Jesus of Nazareth. Well, where to begin? He was a prophet who said and did amazing things. We should know. We were there for many of those events ourselves. But our leaders betrayed him to the Roman occupation forces who crucified him outside the gates of Jerusalem. It was terrible. For we had just begun to hope that he was the long-awaited one who would liberate Israel from all her troubles. Long pause. 
and a shadow falls across their faces. Today would make it, let's see, the third day since this happened. Obviously, the third day means nothing to them. Jesus' words about that length of time have been forgotten in the chaos. Some very strange things have been happening, they go on. That's what we were just talking about, disturbing, unsettling rumors. We're not sure what to make of them. This morning, some of our women went to the tomb to anoint the body. It was missing. They told us they'd seen angels who said Jesus was alive. And bear in mind, stranger, these were women. They're dear ladies, but like all their sex, they tend to imagine things. But then some of our friends thought, well, we should go and double check on the tomb. And they found that indeed it was empty. The massive rock covering the cave had been rolled away. And they did not see Jesus in there. So, stranger, what do you make of that? Now, reading this again, we can see that the two disciples possess all the essential facts. Everything they say is true. But they're unable to perceive the significance of those facts. They had seen the miracles, they'd heard the teaching, but... They were unable to identify Jesus as anything more than a great prophet. They know Christ has been condemned and crucified, but all they can recognize there is human injustice. And these reports of the empty tomb and angelic declarations, well, there could be a hundred explanations for that. See, the two disciples, they have all the pieces, but they just can't put the puzzle together. It just doesn't make sense to them. They're confused. But they are at least honest disciples who love Jesus and are groping for the truth. And they stand there waiting for the stranger to shed some light and offer perhaps a sliver of hope. How foolish you are! The man exclaims. And the two disciples must have exchanged surprised glances. They don't even know this guy, and he's speaking very sharply to them. But Jesus is not enraged. He's not frustrated. He doesn't vanish in a huff because of their lack of faith or their lack of awareness. He doesn't hold himself aloof, waiting to come up until they've figured out all the answers. Indeed, the very reason Jesus has joined this conversation is because he has compassion for them and their anguished doubts. But still, it's a rebuke. How foolish you are. An affectionate rebuke, but still a rebuke. Jesus takes them to task. You should know better how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Now, isn't it remarkable that Jesus doesn't point them to the witness of the empty tomb, the witness of the women, or the witness of the angels. Valuable as all those things are, he points them to the Old Testament. What high value Jesus places on the scriptures. He delays recognition of himself 
because they need more than a personal resurrection appearance. They need faith that is deeply rooted in the Word of God, a faith that can interpret the, the appearance when it comes and keep on walking when Jesus is no longer apparent to their senses. Disciples are often in distress because we fail to understand and believe the scriptures, and therefore we misinterpret the ways of God. And Jesus goes on and asks them, did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter into glory? Now that's really an astounding claim. We have access to many speculations about the Messiah in Jesus' time, documents that the Jews of that day wrote, wondering exactly who this person would be and what he would do. And literally, out of all those scrolls, not one expresses an expectation of a Messiah who would suffer. They were waiting for someone who would bring victory, who would bring revival, who would come in glory, not suffering. But Jesus explains that the whole Old Testament points to a Messiah, a Christ, whose path to glory would be through suffering. And perhaps our Lord had Isaiah 53 in mind, that passage where God speaks of his suffering servant, who will be pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. You might be familiar with those verses, but keep on reading. The chapter goes on to say, After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. First, suffering. Then, glory. The divine pattern for Jesus. The divine pattern for Jesus' followers. And then, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. What a Bible study that must have been, walking along that dusty road together, the stranger opening up all these scriptures from memory, showing in words that leave no room for doubt that they speak of a suffering Messiah. Christ is the key to the Old Testament. It's more than laws and poetries and prophecies. It all points to him. Every story whispers his name. And not only is Christ the key to the Old Testament, we should add, he is its only true interpreter. Cleopas and his companion, they were good Jews. They knew their Bibles very well, or they thought they did. Much of it they had committed to memory too. But until the risen Christ himself came up alongside them to explain the scriptures, they're blinded and confused. Only now does light begin to dawn in their minds and something strange begins to stir in their hearts. Christ is the only interpreter 
of Scripture. And until he himself comes alongside us by his Spirit, we will always be confused. We will always be led astray. We will always be wandering in the dark. The revelation of God is a mystery beyond human comprehension, human interpretation, human comprehension. Jesus himself, the very wisdom of God, must reveal it to us. Well, the hours have sped by, and now the two disciples look up, and to their surprise and to their disappointment, they're approaching the village, entering Emmaus. The stranger is continuing on, and now is the natural moment to shake hands and wish each other a safe journey. But they urge him strongly not to leave them. Now, this is more than Middle Eastern hospitality. It's an extremely forceful word. The same one used in Jesus, speaking about the violent taking the kingdom of God by force. They won't listen to his polite reluctance. They will not take no for an answer. They're not even sure who this guy is. Did he introduce himself when we met? We can't remember. But they're determined to get more time with him. They must hear more from this man. Stay with us, they plead. It's nearly evening. The day is almost over. The lonely road will soon be dark, and you'll be in danger of wild animals, highway bandits, falling into a ditch. Come, stay with us. Their home, perhaps, or maybe a little village inn where they're staying. So he went in to stay with them. Jesus, you see, will not force his company upon any disciple. He's not so rude as to barge in uninvited. He's quite ready to journey on alone. And had they let him, Cleopas and his companion would never have known whom they had missed. But because they so passionately insist on his continued company, they're granted a life-changing revelation. The three of them sit down to eat. They're weary and hungry after seven miles on the road. But although he is the guest, Jesus takes on the role of the host. He took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. I'm not sure if the significance of that fourfold action registered with these two, they hadn't been present in the upper room the previous week, but this is the exact pattern used in Luke 22 in describing the Last Supper. And he took bread, gave thanks and broke it, and gave it to his disciples. So first, Jesus himself interprets the scripture, and now Jesus himself hosts communion. Christ in word and sacrament. And in that moment, as Jesus offers them the bread, Luke tells us, their eyes were opened and they recognized him. Passive tense, again, you observe, their eyes were opened. The ability to recognize Jesus is a gift of God, not a human achievement. 
And when their eyes are opened, at the same instant, both disciples realize who they've been eaten with. What triggered the recognition? What did God use? Was it the sound of Jesus' voice? A look in his eyes? Or was it the scars on his hands as he passed out the bread? Luke doesn't tell us. But for one glorious moment, the two disciples know themselves to be in the company of their risen master. The last doubts fall away. And faith surges in a great leap upward in their hearts. How long did that moment last? A full second? And then Jesus vanishes from their sight. His chair is empty. And the two are alone, staring at each other. Now, there will come a time of uninterrupted company with Christ at the great feast of God. A joyous meal with full recognition that will never end. But for now, these disciples, like us, must walk the rest of their lives by faith. And after a long, stunned silence, the two disciples exclaimed to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures? But there's no time to be wasted in private enjoyment, in reveling in the revelation, because... They leap up from their chairs at once to return to Jerusalem. The others are back in Jerusalem. The others lost in despair. The others in the grip of grief and sadness. This joy must be shared now. All their objections earlier about the dangers of night travel are waved to the side. They rush out the door. They half walk, half run the seven miles in the dark back to Jerusalem. They've encountered the risen Lord. There is work to be done. Now, as we reflect on how this story speaks to us today, how we might ourselves encounter the risen Lord, I want to turn your attention to a painting by the Italian artist Caravaggio. It's the Supper at Emmaus, painted in 1602 or 1603. And Caravaggio has chosen to depict the split second after the two disciples recognize Jesus, a popular subject for many artists of the time. And in his painting, there are, in fact, three people with Jesus, the two disciples seated. The innkeeper is standing. He's serving them. He has no reaction in this moment. He doesn't know Jesus. He's unchanged. But the two disciples are sitting there in their patched clothes and their receding hairlines. They're very ordinary men, not idealized at all. And in that moment, they're about to exclaim in astonishment. One pushes his chair back and is about to leap to his feet. 
His companion, who appears to be listening to rather than looking at Jesus, he flings his arms wide before speaking. Now, Caravaggio in this painting uses an unusual perspective. There's no background to speak of. Jesus is facing up, but his chair is pushed right back against the wall. And we ourselves are looking at this, and we're right on top of the action, right there in front of the table. The elbow of uh, one disciple in his green jacket looks like it has punched through the canvas, and the foreshortened arm of his friend is reaching out and almost touching us. There was a bowl of fruit on the table. It's half hanging over the edge, precariously balanced. And in the next moment, in the excitement, it's going to be knocked over. But not onto the floor in the painting. Onto our own floor, in our own world, the world of the viewer. And so by pulling us into the scene, Caravaggio gives us a seat at the table. Who do we identify with in this painting? Are we standing there unchanged, with no recognition, no joy, like the innkeeper? Or do we share the same shock of recognition with Cleopas and his companion? Do our own hearts burn within us? And by placing this story almost at the very end of his book, Luke is inviting the same response from us, the same question. For this is a story for disciples of all times and places who long to encounter the risen Lord. And we may find him where these two very ordinary disciples found him as they spoke with one another, fellowshipping even in doubt and despair, as they meditate on God's promises in Scripture, and as they break bread at table. We encounter Jesus even when we're not looking for him, because he tracks us down and he falls into company with us whether we recognize him or not. He knows his own. And we're the most ordinary and forgettable of disciples. Our faith is weak. Our doubts are strong. Yet somehow, we attract the company of the risen one. Today we remind each other, Jesus is alive. We're not grieving a dead prophet, however great. We're not merely remembering wonderful deeds and wonderful words. We worship a living Savior. He has emerged from the tomb victorious. He has conquered sin, Satan, and death. And right now, he sits at the right hand of God. He reigns over all things. And one day, he will come again in glory. And right now, the risen Lord is present with his people by his Spirit.
that Jesus, whom we grieve as absent, God suddenly reveals to us as gloriously present. All we need is for our eyes to be opened. Our risen Lord is with us. He is with us. Where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst of them. Behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the world. This podcast was from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship. Learn more about us online at ticf-georgia.org. Thanks for listening.